0: You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality.
1: Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, May 30th, 2007, and this is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. Joining me this evening are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Perry DeAngelis. Hello. Jay Novella. Hey, what do you read? And Evan Bernstein.
0: And to all our listeners in Peru, a very happy National Potato Day!
1: National Potato Day in Peru. You'd figure they'd have Potato Day in Ireland, not in they Peru. have it in Peru. Rebecca Watson is not with us this evening. Unfortunately, she's having technical difficulties. Actually, with her Mac, with her, with her, with her computer. Yeah, she
0: can't find the on switch. Uh,
2: <laughs> Steve, half our listeners just shut the podcast off. By the way,
1: yeah, that's true. She has been having some technical difficulties <laughs> the last couple of weeks. You know, she has. If you may have noticed, she was has been unusually quiet. It was just because she was having troubles with the recordings.
3: She had some technical difficulties with her Mac. She had a bad
2: Mac attack. She had a bad yeah. Mac attack. So what
3: she did was she went out and bought another <laughs> Mac. <laughs> <She did. laughs> but apparently
1: it's not up and running yet. So she, she, we plan on having her with us again next week.
3: But wait a minute. I see the commercials. They're effortless. You press a button and they're on.
0: Yeah, they make no no effort to work.
2: Perry, why do you relate to the fat guy in those commercials? Of uh, the
3: fact I is me <laughs> <laughs> so, so I make a little side income <laughs> Side income. I certainly don't do it doing this the first news item this week is about
1: the creation Museum opening in Kentucky uh, yes. this is a long time in coming. Oh, time this coming we've had we had a lot of emails uh, about this a lot of people wanted to uh, make sure we knew about this so this is the product of Ken Ham, who is a young Earth creationist. The museum cost, I think, about $25 million. So these people do have money.
2: It's too bad God didn't just create the museum for him. you know?
1: Yeah, he could not just miracle the museum
0: into existence. In six days.
1: Yeah, nope, that cost money. And it's basically a complete abomination of science and education, pretty much as bad as it gets. Actually, you can go through like a little walkthrough of the of what all the different displays they have, and it, it's really more of a Genesis Museum. You know, it basically just goes over the story of Genesis and sort of the a very Christian view of the arc of history. But and they make a couple of side swipes at, at science and evolution. There's one, they have a mock-up of a, a fossilized dinosaur, uh, allegedly from the Grand Canyon, called the Grand Canyon Wall. And uh, on the the website, the caption of this display is, uh, gape at the towering face of Grand Canyon along the front wall, while bones of dreadful dinosaur dinosaurs hint of catastrophe, that's right. A catastrophe caused the uh, the Grand Canyon, not not uh, millions of years of erosion.
4: What kind of catastrophe? Some sort
0: of sudden event. Some
4: sort of flood or something. Steve, it could have been a very slow catastrophe, couldn't it? <laughs> right. The kind you don't even notice.
3: They so have pictures of biblical guys walking around with dinosaurs. They claim that the Leviathan mentioned in the Bible is dinosaurs. Right. I've seen those pictures. <laughs> Some guy in a biblical dress
2: pet and a brontosaurus.
4: I wonder what kind
2: of attendance they're getting. I'd like to know.
0: Well, it's just opened.
4: I think they'll be pretty busy for a while, you know, until the... Uh, the,
0: the novelty wears off. I hope.
4: Yeah. I just hope it just totally goes under after, you know, a year or two. That'd be nice. Here's another yeah.
1: one. They have a, a fossil display called Them Dry Bones. One set of bones, two interpretations. How can two paleontologists digging the same dinosaur fossil in the
4: field reach opposite conclusions? Have, have any of you guys ever heard of a young earth paleontologist?
1: No. I haven't. Mm, no. I mean,
4: what, what That's two, an oxymoron. two paleontologists is he talking about?
1: Right, right. These are hypothetical paleontologists.
4: Oh. The The
1: answer, <laughs> starting points... Fossils don't come with labels. We must begin with assumptions, but which is correct? And how could we possibly know which, which interpretation is correct? <laughs> As if there doesn't exist anything called, oh, I don't know, science? <laughs> Research? What a fool. You just see bones and you slap your interpretation on there from whatever your starting point was. I guess, well, they are accurately describing their process. Um, so that's basically the quality of stuff that you're going to get in the, the Creation Museum.
3: I wonder what the fine is for urinating on uh, exhibits in a museum. I don't know. Maybe we'll find I w- out.
2: I wonder how it feels to bask in my stupidity. <laughs> it's basically one long apology for the nonsense of creation. I've
3: always liked your stupidity, Jay. <laughs> Thanks, Barry. Well, speaking <laughs> of stupidity,
4: Steve, the website that you uh, that you have linked here, and I assume you'll also have it on the notes page, um, yes. has this nice little um, interactive... Uh, it's a blueprint of the, of the museum, and you click on various sections, and it shows you a little picture with a little description of what's yeah, going on. Yeah, that's what I'm reading, what it is. Yeah, that's what – so one of these that I pulled out, one of these quotes said that uh, everyone who rejects his, capital H, his history, including six-day creation and Noah's flood, is willfully ignorant –
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hello,
4: pot, kettle, black, <laughs> willfully ignorant? <laughs> oh, my God. Ken Ham is the poster child for willful
1: ignorance. That is true. The science blogger community is all over it already. I'll, I'll have a link on the notes page to Ferengula, which is a very popular science blog, which basically links to, to dozens and dozens of science blogs completely trashing the museum. So if you'd like to read scientific criticism of this, there's there's plenty to go around. And there, there are some gems in there. One one blogger points out how utterly childish the entire display is. I mean, it really is. It it insults the intelligence of a five-year-old. That's how lame the whole thing is. It's really incredible. Well, there's
3: another little entry here on their site. Uh, this people it has a picture of people exiting, and it says visitors report an average loss of 20 points of IQ per visit. <laughs>
4: oh, I thought it'd be more than that. And, and
3: that's an
1: underestimate, I'm sure. That's self-reporting. So,
4: <laughs> that mega blog, Steve, that you linked to here had uh, had a link from the LA Times, and uh, they were they were talking about uh, you know the state the state of uh, of America and saying that uh, three of the uh, of Three men seeking to lead the last superpower on Earth, referring to the last uh, Republican um, presidential debates, um, reject the scientific consensus on cosmology, thermonuclear dynamics, geology, and biology, believing instead that Bam Bam and Dino play together. Right. Uh, it was a funny quote from L.A. Times. I was very disappointed with uh, with the uh, the quote from the New York Times. Very wishy washy mm-hmm. and uh, very disappointing. I was surprised that that. I mean, we, we, Steve, were you surprised that a quote like that came from? Uh, I was. You know, the New mainstream
1: media, except for a couple of exceptions like the L.A. Times, the mainstream media was very wishy washy on reporting on the Creation Museum, as if they were trying to be politically correct or balanced. You know, that it was terrible. I mean, the journalists totally. Failed to put this in its proper perspective that this is you know, it, you know a, a, an affront to science it is you know a very narrow minded childish display that, that is completely rejected by the mainstream scientific community, they really completely d- failed to put this in the proper perspective. So th- this is, you know again, a, a, one of the most glaring recent failures of the mainstream media
2: to deal with these types of issues. How can they slip that up? I mean, how could they not report correctly on well, this? Well, the
4: New York Times didn't even send their science writer... To, to write yeah, story that's that they, the problem. Uh, come on, it is the general decrease in the number of science writers,
1: science journalists, and you know, basically all-purpose journalists covering science issues. And again, it's this misplaced uh, sense of balance in journalism—the notion that you have to balance every issue, even when the issues themselves are inherently unbalanced. Like you know, creation nonsense versus the consensus of scientific opinion. These are not balanced sides of. of of the uh, the controversy,
0: two plus two so. is it really four? Let's ask the experts. I think it's four. Right. I don't think it's four. <laughs>
3: oh, there we go. We got both sides. <laughs> How can two mathematicians come to a different conclusion? Well, one of them's a dick.
4: <laughs> Steve, there was a quickly. Steve, there was a um, a link to the National Center for Science Education. They mentioned that there, there have been a lot of uh, petitions being signed uh, um, against this this museum. Uh, they hmm. they mentioned. Over 800 scientists in the three states surrounding the museum, Kentucky, Indiana, and Ohio, have signed a statement that's sponsored by the NCSE. And, that, I mean, that's all well and good, but I'm thinking, wait, three states and they only got 800 scientists to sign it? I mean, that just seems like a low number to me.
1: What's the statement? It's just its just a, a condemnation. I mean, there's nothing you can do about it. It's a privately owned museum. You know. Museum, what can you do?
4: Right, but I expected that I think there should be 5,000, uh, you know, names on this. Uh, on this Maybe over time they can get more.
3: After this podcast, there will be. <laughs> right. Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, all we could do is ridicule it. I mean, there's nothing legally right. that can be done. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, that, that, is, that wouldn't be basically censorship. You know, this is, this is definitely a free speech issue, and oh, yeah. they have the right to do that, and we have the right to ridicule them for doing it. The next issue is very similar, actually, it's speaking about free speech, and this is a follow-up to our uh, Philadelphia banning psychic, psychics uh, piece that we've done in the last couple of weeks. This one comes from Salem, Massachusetts, uh, and this one, is, Salem is considering passing a law to test psychics for licensure, which is interesting because that's the idea that Rebecca came up with when we were talking about the Philadelphia situation, and I, and I basically r- ridiculed her for that suggestion. Uh, and it's too bad she's not here to talk about it tonight. But basically, actually the article, in my opinion, reinforces what I was saying, which is that testing psychics as a prerequisite to licensure uh, and licensing psychics in order for them to be able to, to set up shop is really just a way for psychics to protect their monopoly, to protect their their business and to... Uh, to squelch competition. It really isn't a mechanism for protecting the public from fraud. The, in fact, I say that because the people who are really pushing for for licensure and for, for a testing of psychics are the psychics who are already embedded in Salem. Those are the ones who want it. Right. Right. Obviously, that wouldn't be the, all dollars and right. would, That wouldn't be the case if this was going to protect the public from frauds because they're all frauds. So uh, they're they're doing it to pre- to prevent com- competition from coming into the city because Salem is a mecca because of the you know the history there of the witch trials is a mecca for these this kind of stuff. One of the uh, quote unquote witches or psychics who is who has been in Salem for a long time told of how she got her license. Uh, she was tested by a uh, a police officer, and she wrote, "He sat down with me. I did a psychic reading. He was pleased with the reading, and I got my license." And that was said by uh, a woman by the name of Cabot. So, uh, and that's what we said: if, that if you know, the, if the testing is not adequate and scientific, if it's in the hands of you know bureaucrats it's not going to serve the function that we would like it to serve which is protecting the public from fraud or fraud and and false claims
4: whether right.
0: it's conscious should or not should we right. offer our services to be the uh, the arbiters well that, that's what you would need
4: Steve, it's even worse. It's even worse than, than you're saying. When I when I read the title of this, psychics may have to pass test to practice in Salem. It, at first, I, at first blush, I was like, "Oh, that's great! You get a good test going, and 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 you're all set." But if you, you read the article, it's really pathetic what this yeah. testing consists of. The, a lot of the local, a lot of the uh, city councilors, uh, their recommendations were: uh, "We got to do a criminal background check." require psychics to submit a five-year employment history and their educational background and then even the psychics um, ideas were even lamer. First off nobody under 20 should be doing the readings that was one stipulation that, they, that they're considering. They also want to create a committee that would screen prospective psychics and uh, some psychic at a pyramid bookshop wants candidates to show their experience and training before becoming licensed. That's it. I mean those are the tests that they would it's go through. It's all about limiting it's, competition. Absolutely. That's, it. That's it's all, all about it is. limiting competition. That's all it is. It's, not,
1: it's not about Quality control—the whole concept of licensing fortune tellers is re- is yeah. ridiculous. It, when, when you when you give a license to pseudoscience, you give it legitimacy it doesn't deserve, and it doesn't ever serve the purpose that is a, is a, that is originally sold, which is quality control. It only serves the purpose of right. squelching competition. And, and what so and the bad way that the
2: article reads, it reads as if everybody believes that psychics exist. It would be like uh, a you know, a, a a, a, you know, a taxi cab driver driving without a license You know the the fact is taxi cab driving exists That's the, this is the, the supposition that this article takes and I have to read one thing out of here that really got me uh, the person says one woman paid more than $2,000 for readings at a Salem shop where she was told she had a black aura around her according Ooh-hoo. to Zafransky then one day she came into my shop crying Zafransky told city counselors I said you don't have a black aura sit down and I'll show you your aura on my machine and it was blue and wonderful <laughs>
0: What? <laughs> Blue and wonderful, Jay.
2: Yeah. Uh, she has a an aura
1: machine, huh?
3: Well, you know, you, if you're going to do this, right, if you're going to license fortune telling, then you have to define it mm-hmm. in a legal way. And they do at the bottom of this piece. I, I want to read this. Bear with me for a second. Okay, this is how the city council is going to define fortune telling. The telling of fortunes, forecasting of futures, or reading the past by means of any occult, psychic power, faculty, force, clairvoyance, cardomancy, psychometry, phrenology, spirits, tea leaves, tarot cards, scrying, coins, sticks, dice, sand, coffee grounds, crystal gazing, or other such reading, or through mediumship, seership, prophecy, augury, astrology, palmistry, necromancy, mind reading, telepathy, or other craft, art, science, talisman, charm... Potion, magnetism, mageti- magnetized article, or substance, or by any such similar thing.
0: But not voodoo. No poop smelling? <laughs> <laughs>
3: That's
0: it. Yeah, That's what about voodoo? Yeah, voodoo. You I'm, I'm, you I mean, I'm insulted. All the voodoo people in Salem uh, They left out in so much Salem on that, on up that in list. Arms. These guys are crackpots. What,
1: what about thaumaturgy? How could you leave out
0: thaumaturgy?
4: Yeah,
1: pots? duh. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on. All the thaumaturgy is going to be up in uh, arms now. Somebody sat down and made that list. That's so They did. That's a
3: lawyer. It's a, it's a legal entity. The, the purpose of the list was to be all inclusive. That, I know. I know. I understand that. But you, we've already come up with some things not on the list. <laughs> Jay, well, yeah, but the list says and any such similar thing, right? So it, it means everything.
1: Right. And, Jay, <laughs> you're right. The, the, the article totally takes for granted that it's legitimate, that it's, that it's a
2: real. Right, yeah. thing. So does
3: the definition. Right, I think it does,
2: Perry. You did a good job reading that because that that sums it all up right there. There it oh, is. Oh, it's out, It's outrageous.
3: I mean, it's <sighs> just so. St- we really should testify. It says they're going to revisit the topic. We we should. At we least should send a letter. Uh, another follow up piece. I think it was either the last week or the week before. I reported
1: about the UK scientists led by a doctor Born who uh, is. Urging the National Health Service to drop its covering of homeopathy, and we were you know, heartily uh, applauding Dr. Bourne and his colleagues for doing that Well, Peter Fisher, who is the Director of the Royal London Homeopathic Hospital, has written an open letter of his own responding to Dr. Bourne and his colleagues. Basically, defending the homeopathic hospital that he runs. And it is an incredibly lame piece of uh, alternative medicine uh, apology. So uh, he writes, for example, we offer real patient choice, safe, effective, drug free, and self empowering treatments for many common medical problems provided by well-qualified doctors and nurses. So that's just pure propaganda. First of all, he appeals to choice, which is a very common ploy among the uh, the cam artists or scam artists. And he appeals to – he says that the treatments are drug-free, which, which is implying what? That drugs are not effective, that they can't be used as safely or appropriately? What is that implying? It's really just – Appealing to irrational fears of of drugs, not anything that's based upon science or good medicine. Also appeals to um, self empowerment, you know that, and that is one of the biggest ploys of the entire CAM movement. That they're essentially the the scientific criticism of. So-called complementary and alternative modalities is that they are not based on science, evidence, logic, and plausibility.
0: Other than that, they're great. Who needs that
1: stuff? <laughs> yeah, and the response to the criticism is it provides people choice. All right, that's a non sequitur. It does not answer the 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 claim. Or people want to be empowered to cure themselves. Again, it's a not it's not responsive. It's a non sequitur. It doesn't address the only thing that really matters. Does it? Work.
2: Everything else is just a diversion. Yeah, but Steve, he does cite some evidence in this article.
1: What? So, but then he then he does go on to to make claims th- that there is evidence for efficacy. Although he refers mainly to acupuncture, saying that we also provide things like acupuncture. Uh, and, and he does cite evidence to say to argue that homeopathy is effective. But the evidence he cites does not at all make the case. He, he refers to meta-analyses and reviews of homeopathy, for example, um, however, completely ignores this, the mainstream scientific interpretation of that same exact body of evidence, that if you look at the best studies of homeopathy, they're all negative. In fact, there's pretty much an inverse relationship between the quality of the study and the size of any effect, and the best studies are all negative. Once you eliminate the, the centers that have been shown to to be to, to be having fraud or to have fraudulent results. So there isn't any credible evidence that homeopathy works. That's the consensus opinion of the scientific community. So he's just cherry picking data and interpreting data his own way in order to make really an unsubstantiated and and a very unscholarly, unscientific claim that there's that the evidence shows that, that any of these modalities work.
2: Towards the uh, the bottom of the article he says Homeopathy is enigmatic, remarkably popular, widespread, and persistent, despite the skepticism of retired professors and biomedical background. It is simply not true to say that it is unsupported by evidence. Now, doesn't ed- enigmatic mean pr- like mysterious? Hard to define. Yeah, hard to define? Puzzling.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know what he's referring to there. I think he's trying to dismiss... Dr. Bourne and his colleagues by saying that they're behind the times, they're retired, you know, they don't know what they're talking about, and that homeopathy is the wave of the future. I mean, that's, that's the impression that he's trying to create there. And then he makes the referral to the review of the studies, but his interpretation is completely out of step with you know, mainstream scientific reality. Yeah, reality. I, I don't know if with enigmatic he means that we don't know how homeopathy works. It's, his statement is unclear. The bottom line is that it's not just that we don't know how homeopathy works, it's that homeopathy cannot possibly work. It, it's water. It, it, there is no, no possibility within physics, you know, forget about biology and medicine, within physics that there could be any therapeutic effect physiologically to homeopathic remedies. Well, then
3: how do you explain that hospital? Right,
0: exactly. I'm I'm surprised he didn't trot out some anecdotal evidence and testimonials and that seems to be only a little piece missing to his quote-unquote argument.
2: Do they ever just come out and say it's magic? This is magic, people. Yes, magic. they do. Yeah, they, do. Yeah. They, do. <laughs> they do. They do. They say, but, but they use slightly different
1: terminology. They say that the the water retains the vibrations of what's been dissolved in it. Before, retains orders. memory. Water memory. But that is that is functionally the equivalent of saying it's magic because there is no mechanism for what they're saying. Right? So So just... Propping up one unknown to explain another unknown is is again the, the the intellectual equivalent of saying it's magic, you know. It's like saying it's like explaining a miracle by saying, "Well, God did it." Oh, okay, that. Or fairies her.
0: exist because you know. leprechauns created them,
2: right? I mean, Whatever. At least put vodka in the bottle or something. You know, give it a little punch. Sometimes they sometimes they're alcohol based, but usually they're water based. No, I'm talking vodka. Like yeah, know, you're straight talking straight real
3: stuff. yeah. Clearly, you don't understand the law of infinitesimals. Who made that law, anyway? Yeah,
2: Someone very uh, small. Hahnemann. Oh, yeah,
3: Hahnemann, the guy who
1: invented <laughs> homeopathy. And they're not you, the, you, the law, laws are misnomers. These are not laws of nature. These are not laws of science. I These know. are rituals. These are magical voodoo rituals. That's what. But they Perry,
2: are. it's not even. It's not even that you get a small amount. You get a negative amount of the active ingredient
0: well just right right just, the, the, <laughs> the likelihood of there it's being nonexistent the, the likelihood of there being a trace of uh, any sort of active ingredient goes into in almost impossible probability.
1: yeah now, I blogged about this this week, and uh, interestingly, a, a homeopath submitted a comment to my to my entry, and I wanted to just read a couple of things that she said. Mm-hmm. she's a london based homeopath Jolly good and she she writes she calls herself Sue. Actually, her name is Sue Sue? Sue Young. Her name is is Sue Young. She's
3: as common as (laughs) dirt.
1: Why are you so vehement against homeopathy? You control the research and you can make it say anything you wanted to. You are just sticking to the money. I would like to see you argue your prejudices with India and China directly. Are they fools too? If orthodoxy was so wonderful, then why did we get thalidomide and too much salt and sugar in our diets and antibiotics in our animal feed? Surely your science could have told you this was bad for health. But you lot didn't say a word against it, did you? No, you just follow the money. Science is just a new religion, and like all religions, it is a control freak, and it wants to label everything else a heresy. God, she's waving that thing around like it's a stinky fish, <laughs> smacking us in the face. Here's your <laughs> science.
0: <laughs> what?
1: So there we go. So that was like the most cogent defense of homeopathy that uh, that surfaced. What did on she my actually lot. say, Steve? Oh, yeah, oh
2: yeah, that was the equivalent <laughs> of
1: saying, "Oh yeah, I mean, you know I mean her response is i mean almost incoherent are i 'm supposed to God. argue with India and China what are they t- what is she talking about <laughs> so she accuses what me of following the money you know that that 's like, I love those self serving assumptions and, and paranoia that people use. Steve Kabar, ten grand, please. She says, you know, again, she impugns all of science, but yet at the same time, homeopaths are quick to cite scientific evidence when they think it supports their their point of view. But when I use science to say it doesn't work, oh, science is just a religion; you can make it say whatever you want it to say. Well, okay, make up your mind.
0: Let's have one homeopath take the JREF challenge for the million dollars, please. Step up, take the money. Randy has
1: tried to make that happen. That. He's tried to make that no. happen. It's also like homeopaths don't make money, they don't charge for their services. I mean, are they doing this for free? She also mentions things like you know the diet and antibiotics and thalidomide. Did homeopaths reveal the problems with those things? No, sci- medical scientists did. You know, the fact that, there, that, there is a, that t- science takes time to work itself through the evidence and the process um,
3: doesn't mean that it's not working. It means that it is working. All I know is as an obese man, doctors have shoved salt and sugar down my throat all my life.
2: Mm-hmm. I want to lay it right at their doorsteps. <laughs>
0: damn doctors! Damn doctors! Oh.
2: All right. Yet again, doctors. I'll generalize and say there's people out there that sit around hating science. They just hate it.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: it the, they hate science <laughs> when it questions their sacred cows. That's right. That's when they hate it, yeah. Jay. And, and the, when it supports them, they like when it. Camp proponents are they famous love it. for that. They, They cherry-pick
1: evidence that supports what they want, and then when the evidence shows that their therapies don't work, they literally say, well, science can't study this modality.
0: And then they reach for their antibiotics so they don't get sick.
1: Well, let's move on to your emails. I have two emails uh, in response to the interview we did last week with Gareth Hayes regarding pseudoscience in Quite China. Had a bit of
3: feedback on the old I, Gareth yeah. interview.
1: I had a bit of feedback. I'm going to read one on each side just to represent both sides. The first one comes from Alan Allenson who says he? Who gives his location as China, and he writes, Dear Skeptics, what a great pleasure it was to hear your guest Gareth's analysis of China. So often your show is bogged down with science, experts, and facts. It's great to hear someone who ignores all that. My wife, who is Chinese, said she thought Gareth was just repeating uninteresting stereotypes and generalizations. I told her that's because she hasn't learned how to think analytically or creatively. It's great that none of you questioned anything that Gareth said, and you took it at... All at face value. It really ruins the show when you ask your guests for evidence or for their sources. Good thing you didn't bother to do that with Gareth. Having lived in China for three years, he is clearly an authority. Uh, He goes on to basically reiterate those same basic points. The second email we got is from Mark, who writes, Please do not use my last name. I am a foreign service officer, and critical comments about China might come back to haunt me. First things first, I love the show. I came across it back in January. I've listened to all the previous podcasts. The interview with Gareth Hayes brought back lots of memories of my five-plus years in China. I speak Chinese and I'm married to a Chinese woman. Having dealt with hundreds of Chinese officials and thousands of eager American business people, I second Gareth's comments about China not being nearly the market it is cracked up to be. Many companies flock to China because everyone else is doing it. Some of the executives they send realize that they will never make a profit, but they rarely tell headquarters because their careers depend on being China hands. The U.S. government helps with the cheerleading. Companies then hang on until they have a face-saving reason to close up shop. The hype then picks up and draws in fresh foreigners eager to exploit the Chinese. I could go on. One other comment on Chinese medicine. My wife's uncle supplies safflower, canola, and other edible oils to Chinese medicine manufacturers. I once asked him why he didn't sell them for use in food. He said that he would need to bribe at least eight different government agencies in order to get the proper licenses to sell them as food. Selling them for use in Chinese medicine only requires one approval slash bribe. Keep up the excellent podcasts. Mark Johnson. Oh, just kidding about the last name. That's not his real last name.
0: Ah. Um, <laughs> Officer Johnson, your name is safe with us. <laughs>
1: your, your last name is safe with us. So, uh, we, we basically had emails in those two veins—very, very critical of our interview, and then some supporting it. So, first, you know, some background. You know, the 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 interview with Gareth was our first of what 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 we were planning on doing a series of interviews with uh, with our readers who live in other parts of the world, other countries to get a, to get a different perspective on what is the predominant beliefs and pseudosciences and superstitions of that part of the world that country that culture. Um, all of us who do the podcast are all live in the northeastern part of the United States, so we wanted to give a little bit of a broader perspective and that's basically what we said at the beginning of the interview. That this was, you know, the impression of Gareth, who was living in China. It was he's not a historian, a cultural expert. Um, so it was not it was offered as his experience and his interpretation, not as a definitive expert view. And, and I think a lot of people got that. And even though some who were critical acknowledged that that's how it was presented. Um, I also want to point out – I mean I think the, the, the one legitimacy in, in, this, in the, the many criticisms that we heard was that Gareth was a little bit absolute in his statements, a little bit overgeneralizing. And I think in retrospect that that's true. Um, that that really went more towards the, the tone uh, of his comments and but not really the underlying points he was making or the specific facts he cited to support his claims. Uh, and I want to go over them a little bit in detail in just a moment. But I also want to say that the other observation that has a kernel of legitimacy is the fact that we didn 't challenge Gareth much on what he was saying, and actually that um, is primarily of an artifact of the post production what what in the post production because the interview basically went beyond in scope, went far beyond what I initially had intended. I I wanted to focus on superstitions and pseudosciences and we ended up talking about the education system and the research and the economy and academia. So, you know, what we did in post-production was basically check all, you know, fact check all the stuff that Gareth said, and it all checks out, to be honest with you, all the stuff that I left in. There were some things that Gareth said that we actually did challenge him on and then I couldn't really validate to my satisfaction, and I edited it out in post-production, but in doing that, I also edited out all of the times when we were actually more questioning about what he was saying. So the listener was left with the impression that there was no filter there. But there actually was a very, very significant filter there.
4: Thanks, Steve.
1: <laughs> so I, w- I did want to go over, since I since we didn't really... Have the references last week just some of the core claims that Gareth made and what and what I found out about it in doing the post production and since then in preparing for the this week 's follow up uh, one of the one of the claims that Gareth made is, essentially is that academic fraud is rampant in China, uh, and in fact, this is absolutely substantiated by um, many other independent observations and editorials about china uh, in fact. The you know Gareth reported that sixty percent that, that that a study by uh, the Chinese government admitted to sixty percent of academics uh, re- self-reporting that they engaged in bribery or plagiarism in order to to advance academically or get their degree. sixty percent and that. Uh, that checks out. That was reported um, in the mainstream media in the West. I think it was actually first reported in the Christian Science Monitor, but then it was picked up by uh, many news outlets. I could not find anyone questioning that figure. So that, as far as I could tell, that seems perfectly legitimate, and there was, and that's that's well referenced. Gareth then said, "If anything, that's underreported." And that was his, you know, his opinion. It was, it was presented as such. It was, and I do think that Gareth, you know. Uh, it has a, a bit of a cynical point of view, but, that, but that's fine. But the 60% figure is absolutely referenceable. He, there were also many others who, uh, who made the same observation that fraud in research and in academia is absolutely endemic. The China Academy of Sciences has admitted this and, ha- and recently has put forth regulations to, fright- to fight the rampant fraud in, within China. This is the the conventional wisdom, if you will. This is the universal observation. I did not find anything in in looking actively for any editorials or anything written on this issue to contradict that basic premise. Uh, Another basic premise is that the Chinese government is very protective of its reputation and it actually uses its power and influence, access to China and its economic uh, might in order to silence criticism of China, even of Western researchers and scholars. And I have found you know, several uh, studies, which again I'll have the references to, that echo that very observation. Um, for example, this is an article by a Karsten Holtz who writes, What happens when we don't play along is all too obvious. We can't attack Chinese collaborators. When we poke around in China to do some research, we run into trouble. Uh, for example, he, and he goes on elaborating about um, the, the many ways in which China, the Chinese government will uh, basically crack down on any of its critics. And he, and he again, uh, agrees with Gareth in that it is effective in intimidating uh, any, any would-be critics of China. Uh, another piece of information I found that was very interesting is that uh, there is a a Chinese scientist, a Feng Zuzi, who uh, is now living in San Diego, who is really a skeptic, the guy has set up a website in Chinese, uh, unfortunately, I could not find an English version of it, but he has he set up a website he's basically a self proclaimed science police, and he's basically being a watchdog on the scientific research going on within China, and he claims that it is again pseudoscience and fraud is absolutely endemic and rampant within the research community, and that the, of course the media within China is um, completely uncritical of it, and there's essentially no watchdog on it, so he's now trying to fill that role of being a watchdog on the research that's going on within China. Of course, a lot of these things you could say about this country as well. We have the National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine. There's you know, obviously fraudulent and pseudoscientific research going on everywhere, but and we obviously have been very critical of that in the West in the past. I mean, that's what we do is try to find, you know, find and criticize pseudoscience where it crops up. But I think that from reading Fang's you know, articles about Fang and what he has said and written, the one difference in China is that it's, it's mainstream and official within China. It's not fringe and you know, criticized by the, by the mainstream scientific community. Gareth also mentioned that education in China specifically – does not teach critical thinking and analytical skills. And a lot, I think that was the one observation that that people took the most offense at. First of all, you know, one person on the boards interpreted that as saying that the Chinese people lack the ability for analytical thought. And that's at all, not what Gareth was saying. He was saying that the education system is designed by the government not to teach analytical or independent or creative thinking. Uh, in fact... That observation that echoes the the universally every editorial and observation that I've that I've been able to find and read about the Chinese education, uh, even reports that were generally positive, citing all the positive things about China's education, and and just to mention them, uh, some editorials have observed that the Chinese government is putting a lot of money into the education system. They they do seem to value it um, to to some degree. The Chinese education system excels in math, and that the that the average Chinese student works extremely hard many more hours per week and per year than say the corresponding student in the united states it 's very competitive and one positive cultural thing is that people equate success in school with hard work much more in China than in the United States in the in the u s and i 've observed this myself before there is a little bit too much of a um, of a cultural belief that success is based upon talent, not necessarily hard work, which of course an, both are, are true to some degree, but, the, but emphasizing talent is also an excuse not to work hard or an excuse that I didn't succeed because I'm doing the best I can. Uh, it, it's not my fault. Whereas in China, it's you know, you do as well as, as you do based upon how hard you work, and that's I think probably a more adaptive uh, uh, mindset to have. However, even the positive reviews mention that China's education system is criticized for its lack of individual thinking, creativity and enjoying learning for its own sake. So and, and I did not hear or I did not find or read any editorials or observations that contradicted that basic premise that that Gareth made. So the bottom line is you know, although it made the tone of the interview may have come off as a little bit overgeneralizing and even stereotyping, the core points that Gareth made are all in, are all individually verifiable and are in accordance with a lot of other uh, observations and editorials that have been made about the, the Chinese system as it is. This uh, this piece certainly has sparked a lot of very interesting discussion and opinions. And I've certainly learned a lot from it. If you're interested in in taking this further, there is a very lively debate going on on our message board. And Gareth is answering a lot of very specific questions. We're getting a lot of opinions from other people who either live or have visited China, including um, some Chinese natives. So you should check it out. There's a lot of good information there. The next email comes from Chet Skera, who writes... Recently, I discovered Kevin Trudeau's newest text on weight loss on my local bookstore shelves. After asking around a bit in the store, I learned that sales of Trudeau's book are robust. After leafing through this ridiculous pile of nonsense, I had a hard time containing my anger and disbelief for two reasons. First, how could anyone be so stupid as to pay good money for such a drivel? Secondly, it angered me because I know that Trudeau is now a mega millionaire, solely due to his duping of the public with his previous books. Steve, is anything being done to somehow show Trudeau's true colors? Can anything be done? The straw that broke the camel's back for me was when I saw Trudeau's earlier Natural Cures book on my sister's bookshelf. Mind you, my sister is an emergency room nurse. Is this a lost cause? Is the public free game for such predators? Well, um, we've had other emails about Kevin Trudeau as well and a lot of requests to discuss this issue so we we do not have an interview this week so we have time to get around to this. This is kind of a meaty topic. Uh, Kevin Trudeau is an unabashed, absolute con artist, fraud, huckster. There's really no way to put no other way, other way to put it. He has actually been convicted of fraud. He spent two years in a federal penitentiary. Uh, the FTC, the, the cellmate f- of Dennis Lee. <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> perhaps. In fact, a few years ago, the uh, the Federal Trade Commission virtually banned uh, Kevin Trudeau from. making infomercials. They said he could not make any infomercials selling any products or making any kind of health claims. Uh, And this was because he was essentially a menace to the public, that this guy was making money by making false, demonstrably false and fraudulent claims. A lot of it was surrounding his selling of the coral calcium. Uh, He made a lot of false health claims for that. So uh, what... Trudeau did, because he, he couldn't basically sell products or make claims about our products anymore, he, he basically came up with a strategy to put the claims instead in a book and just market the book, not market any products. Now, books are, are protected under the First Amendment. They're protected under the freedom of speech. And, and this strategy essentially worked for him. He was able to bypass the Federal Trade Commission's regulations uh, or injunction against him, basically defrauding the public. He sold five million copies, Steve. Uh, something like that by now. I mean, basically, this guy has not not just millions, by by some reports, a billion dollar empire built upon defrauding the public. And you know, he's he's spreading out into other books now. His shtick is basically to to sell books to the public. Uh, with the uh, the theme that he is a consumer activist, a, a consumer advocate, that he is the victim of a government conspiracy against them, he is selling basically fear of big business, of big medicine, of the government, and he's combining that with you know basically the 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 public's. The public, lo- the, the public love affair with with all things natural. So his book, "Natural Cures That They Don't Want You to Know About," basically combines those two uh-huh. concepts: fear of the Big Brother conspiracy and love. Has he been on Oprah? Uh, actually, I don't know if he's been on Oprah. He basically his, his shtick is to is to use infomercials to then build the market for himself, and he has a lot of money to invest in in marketing his uh, his nonsense i 've seen his infomercials, you know I've, I've you know heard him he's he 's pretty slick, but he just tells lies. i mean here's an example of the kind of stuff that he says. He says that the FDA says that 's the Food and Drug Administration. The FDA says that only drugs can cure disease. To try to say that there's this big conspiracy against any natural cures or against anything other than drugs, and the FDA is claiming that only drugs can cure disease. That is an absolute lie and distortion. In fact, it, it was Congress <laughs> Congress who who gives who writes the laws that essentially say what the FDA can and cannot do. And what what the Congress the congressional law is, you know, governing the FDA is that Anything which makes a claim to treat a disease needs to is regulated as a drug, meaning it has to provide evidence for safety and efficacy before it could be marketed. That's very different than saying that only drugs can cure disease. It has, it has nothing to do with that. It only has to do with how things are regulated. Of course, that same law also says that things which are marketed as either supplements or herbs – can make you know, pseudo-health claims as long as they don't mention diseases. So actually the law that he's referring to is very favorable to, to, um, to so-called natural, or, or supp- natural products or supplements. Uh, so that's the kind of distortion that he does you know, to try to make it seem like there's this big government conspiracy against him. He, he also would have us believe – that you know here's a guy who has been convicted of fraud who has spent time in jail who is and and fraud for things like you know writing bad tr- checks and you know stealing money from from uh, or embezzling money from banks and uh et cetera. i mean like just out and out thievery and that this guy who he says ah, hey, you know i made mistakes when i was young and, and and but now by amazing coincidence he's discovered all of this hidden arcane health knowledge that, you know, the, the big government conspiracy is trying to hide from the public. And we need this guy to tell us what the real information is about natural cures, who just happens to have this long, endless, you know, criminal record. The guy's basically a sociopath, you know, who, who will say anything as long as it makes him, you know, millions and billions of dollars. You know, and the, the other thing is, this information is out there. You know, there's if you look up Kevin Trudeau, just type in Kevin Trudeau and fraud. You come up with all kinds of articles. I mean, uh, y- detailing, outlining the timeline of his fraud. Do, yeah,
2: Wikipedia has
1: a very yeah. good treatment. Uh, uh, Amazon.com. If you just read people who bought the book, here's the other thing: the book is a scam within a scam. Because if you buy the book, "Natural Cures," it actually doesn't have the cures in the book. All it is is a long paranoid rant about you know big pharma and big government and about how wonderful things that are natural are. But if you want to actually know the quote-unquote cures that he's offering, you have it, all it says is go to my website and then you have to buy an online subscription to his website in order to get mm-hmm. the information. Wow. So a lot of the sort of the complaining on Amazon.com was about the fact that the book isn't even the scam that it says it is. It's, a, it's actually a deeper level scam. But the book does contain real howlers like... The sun does not cause cancer. Sunblock causes cancer. Or wow. uh-huh. or here's another one. All over the counter non-prescription drugs and prescription drugs cause illness and disease. There you go. All drugs just okay. cause disease. How did we not notice that? And <laughs> the chemicals that are in foods are all poisons. They're all poisonous. If you took enough of them, they would kill you. Therefore, they're poisonous.
0: <laughs> Actually, that's probably true. Yeah, if you took enough of anything, they would kill you. If, yeah, exactly. If you took enough of the food, it would kill you. If you drank enough water, it would kill you.
3: I mean, the, you know, the, the, the guy's heartless. The, the, the sad commentary here is that this putz could sell so Millions many
1: books. books. It is.
3: I mean, that's the sad commentary. Well, the, you know,
2: the dogs are lapping up behind him, Perry. I mean, it takes, it takes all these people to buy his books and to buy into his crap in order for a guy like this to get right. rich. I mean, what he's saying is obvious nonsense, and the
1: information is available for anybody who would take even just a few minutes to look for it. His history speaks for itself, and yet people are so desperate for this that, and so uncritical of it that they buy it. And it really is just incredible. Now, part of the question was what can be done. And this gets again back to you know, First Amendment freedom of speech laws and, and the balance between freedom and regulation and protection. And Is, is there basically anything we can do except try to get the word out, which obviously doesn't work you know, in a situation like this, at least not enough to keep him from making a you know, billion dollars selling us. In fact, however – The the First Amendment is not completely unlimited. And here's a quote in this one article I reference from Richard Fallon, who is a professor of constitutional law at Harvard Law School. Presumably he knows something about constitutional law. And he says, Nobody has a right to engage in fraud, even when the fraud takes the form of speech. What, if any, laws does someone break when engaging in false or misleading speech? Generally none because the First Amendment wouldn't allow punishment for that. But one of the exceptions is that false and misleading misleading speech can be prohibited or prevented when that speech is closely tied to commercial activity. Exactly. And that's Ah, kind of the same thing I was saying about the psychics, that because this is commercial activity, then what they say and what they claim can be regulated because if it's false, then that constitutes fraud. And that trumps the freedom of speech, right? And so it's nice to hear that a Harvard law professor of constitutional law agrees with that. But despite that, it doesn't seem that anything is being done. The FTC says we're keeping a close eye on him. They find him. They find him like five hundred thousand dollars. You know, okay, wow. Probably
0: a Yeah, slap on bucket. slap
1: on those. You're making millions and millions of dollars. You know, the occasional half a million or million dollar fine is just the cost of doing business. It's ob- it's not a deterrent, obviously. You know, seriously, I think. That if you could build enough of a case against somebody like uh, like Kevin Trudeau, the law should be in place that you could take every dime the guy owns. You could basically figure out how much money has he made from this and take all of it, every single penny from him.
0: He, this guy, you're saying, sue this it? guy, or well, t-
1: whatever. Well, that's that's
0: keep him tied up in that, litigation. That's another point. I'm saying the things?
1: government, if they could find him, the f- you should be able to find somebody for every penny they made from fraud. It shouldn't be possible to make a hundred million dollars and then ha- committing fraud, and the fine is five hundred thousand dollars. What what's the use of that? You know, th- there needs to be more more teeth in these regulations. The second point, which you allude to, Evan, is can he be held accountable for the consequences of the claims that he's making? And I think that he should be. I think if somebody, even if it's free speech, you know, the, wh- another sort of limit on free speech is that if the if the free speech incites Somebody to to violence, for example, or incite somebody to to commit some kind of harm demonstrably and the and the speech was demonstrably fraudulent and it showed a like depraved indifference to the health and welfare of other people for you know there could be a very high standard but if there's, there, I think it 's reasonable to have some standard where then you could be held. If not criminally, then civilly responsible for it. So if Kevin Trudeau says, throw away your medications, you're a diabetic, you're taking diabetes medications, you're taking insulin or whatever, throw it away and then go to my website and find out what natural cure you can take. And people do that and they suffer health consequences. They should be able to sue him for that. He should be liable for the, for what he says, especially if it could be convincingly showed that what he that he was consciously committing fraud, depraved fraud, knowing that it would sacrifice the health of other people just so he could make money for himself. And it's really a scandal that we can't figure out a way to 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 keep people like Kevin Trudeau from operating and still have reasonable protections of of free speech. There's got to be a way we could figure out how to do it. Here here. Until then all we could really do is just get the word out, you know, and just try to inoculate people as much as possible about how, how terrible what he, what he's doing is and how ridiculous his claims are and his criminal and fraudulent past.
2: I don't think that method works, to be honest. Well, it hasn't Steve. worked. I
1: mean, do the, you
2: know... It, hasn't it could pop off, you know? I mean, you could you could just be busted with your pants down and the girl looking up into the camera and you're just going to come right back. Yeah. Not it? right back, but... Well, it, you know, I just think the best way to do it long-term is just educate the children. Teach kids science. You know, sure. that'll work better than anything.
3: Yeah, But that, you know, you got to just say, put it out there and say, Kevin Trudeau, you are a scumbag. He is a scumbag. That's it. One of our listeners who previously
1: asked us to deal with him said, he, he's worse than Sylvia Brown. You know, Why are we spending so much time on Sylvia Brown when there are Kevin Trudeaus out there? And you know, I think that we need to deal with all of it. I mean, it's sometimes just representative. Because there's, there's 100 Kevin Trudeaus out there. I mean, you're not making the kind of money he is. But there's a lot of people yeah. out there doing it, and that we attack sort of the big representatives of these categories of pseudoscientists. But I agree in that I think that Kevin Trudeau does much more harm. He's much, much more of a scumbag. And I, and I do despise him much, much more than, uh, than the likes of Sylvia Brown. We'll scrape them all off our shoes. <laughs> <laughs> the last email comes from Matthew Rutherford, who writes, I believe these photographs are genuine. Do you have any knowledge of what this, quote, drone could be and its propulsion system? And then he gives links to photographs. Uh, personally, I believe it to be a secret but terrestrial Project regards Matt Rutherford, uh, we and we'll have the links they 're basically photographs of uh, an object so so some some quote unquote UFO photographs are smudges or blobs of light or points of light are indistinct objects or maybe just some metallic blur uh, or something where you can 't really identify its size and and configuration this is a this is a these are clear close up well lit photographs of an a object, an identifiable meaning that you know, you know, not that we know exactly what it is, but I mean, it's a, it, you can see it in detail. Uh, so that this is not just a, a bad photograph or some astronomical uh, artifact or misidentification of a common object. This is a, a a clear you know object. The question is, what is it? Um, I, I disagree with Matthew in that I don't think this is some government. You know, unmanned probe or drone. Uh, I think that this is a hoax. You know, I think that it's Yeah, you know, I think either. Yeah, th- I think that we're looking at a at a well crafted model. Uh, it's it's small enough to have been you know created as a model. The things you know maybe only a few feet across you can make this in shop class. You, yeah, you can make it. I mean, this is not this is a model. This, this is a, It's pretty it's, cool. Though. Yeah, it's not bad. It's
4: definitely cool interesting. looking. Interesting design. Unique look very unique. Yeah. Yeah. Not, yeah. Um, not your it's got a big saucer solid. shape.
3: Looks like a big meat tenderizer sword. You could kind of whack meat with it. Whack, it's like a whack, donut with it. antenna coming off of it.
0: You know what it reminds me? Of? It reminds me of the crown that the Statue of Liberty wears, kind of with those yeah. prongs coming yeah. off. Yeah,
2: maybe they're patriotic aliens. Yeah, tell everyone out there, take a look at the pictures. They're definitely yeah. interesting to yeah. look at. But in terms of taking
1: this seriously. There are all the red flags of UFO hoaxes on here. First of all, these photographs were submitted to, a, to websites, uh, I think Flickr.com and also to Coast to Coast, which is like a pro-paranormal radio show, by a person who identifies himself only as Chad, does not give his full name, will not <laughs> give his location. So whenever the <laughs> photographer or filmer does not want to identify themselves or give any identifiable uh, yes, I yeah, any identifiable information that's almost a guarantee that it's a fraud. And they often cite some really lame thing I'm worried about, you know, being discovered or repercussions. I mean that's nonsense. Right. This guy, if this were real and he had and it were, you know, something that was genuinely alien and he had these quality photographs he would be selling it for millions of dollars at Time Magazine. I mean, come on! This way, he would course, not be remaining um, anonymous. Uh, red flag. The other thing is that he claims that he's had multiple encounters. So you know, he, he can go out eight and different his, times. Eight, he says here eight
4: different times. Very easy, very easy to find. He says. Apparently, it's following and him. And Yet <laughs> there's no no video video no video. Uh-huh. You know,
0: wonder why
1: you gotta wonder why probably because the thing is not actually flying. Uh, the, the, now, it could be suspended. Uh, a lot In a lot of the photographs, either we do not see the whole object or one piece of it seems to be abutting up against a tree or some other object that could theoretically be supporting it. There are a couple of pictures where it appears to be free-floating.
4: Yeah, there's a few. Uh,
1: and, you know... It, he could have simply thrown it. You know, it's a, it's a photograph. We, we, you can't
2: make any statements about the movement of the object. Uh, Steve, I actually don't think from looking at it, the light doesn't seem just right. I, I think it's definitely Photoshopped. Yeah, that's
1: another possibility is that the object's not where it seems to be, that, the, that it was Photoshopped in. You know, that yeah. certainly is a possibility. I don't know. I, I think... Uh, it's possible that the object is where it is in the in the photo. It'd be really easy just to toss it. I mean, the things are all very low to the ground. It, nothing is high up in the air. Again, it's relatively small. The thing could be quite light, depending on what it's constructed of. This is this this is a would be a pretty easy hoax to pull off these photographs. Video yeah. is a lot different. Video, you need to get something to move in a realistic way and not sway from a swing, or a string, or whatever. And, and the fact that there's no video evidence, I think, is very damning, especially given that the guys claimed to have eight separate encounters with it. I mean, you know, I would be carrying a video camera with me at all times if I were having multiple encounters with something like this.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, the video would would have happened after the first encounter, like a real person would have been like, oh my God, I saw a UFO, I'm going to make sure I have a great video camera.
3: It it does have several long and interesting looking probes. (laughs) Yeah. Just something I thought I'd point out.
1: What is it with aliens and
3: probes? (laughs) I don't know, this one... It looks like you could have a party of probing the
1: going under- on. <laughs> one, one of the photographs is close enough where you could see that there's some writing on the underside of it, and the, and the writing does not... It's clearly an alien language. Yeah, it does not correspond to any terrestrial language that I know of.
2: I No, I zoomed in with with Photoshop, and it says, listen to the SGU. It does. You just have to tilt oh, your head Oh, cool.
3: Really? Yeah. that's cool.
2: Clearly intelligent Even the aliens, aliens. Are listening
3: to us. Of course.
1: Well... Let's move on to Science or, or Fiction.
4: It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week,
1: I come up with three science news items or facts. Two are genuine and one is fictitious. I then challenge my panel of skeptics and the listeners at home to tell me which one is the fake. Are you guys all ready? Yes. So there is a, yes. there is a mm-hmm. kind of a loose theme this week. The, the theme is sound. All of these have something to do with sound. Item number one. NASA scientists report that the chromosphere of the sun is powered and shaped by sound waves. The chromosphere, by the way, is the layer immediately outside the surface of the sun that's bright and colored but not that hot.
3: I don't believe we asked for any hints.
1: Item number two, new research shows that accents have a partial genetic basis. Item number three, a new study finds that moths use sound mimicry to avoid being eaten by bats. How about that? Evan, please go first.
0: NASA scientists report that the chromosphere of the sun is powered and shaped by sound waves. Is there sound? occurring in and around the sun? I would imagine so. I think that's plausible. Number two, new research shows that accents have a partial genetic basis. Mm. I don't know. Number three, a new study finds that moths use sound mimicry to avoid being eaten by bats. Sure. Darwinism at work, you know, survival traits and so forth. I'll say that uh, uh, accents do not have a genetic basis, and that one is fiction.
2: Okay. Jay? Uh, I will agree with my esteemed colleague, and I won't give my reasoning.
4: Okay. Bob? Let's see. Chromosphere powered by sound. Sounds. The word sound seems a a little bizarre when you apply it to the sun, but I mean, just just a pressure wave. I mean, that sounds plausible. Moths use sound mimicry. I don't have any problem with that. I do have a problem with number 2 though accents have a genetic basis that doesn't make much sense uh from from my understanding of accents it's based on uh basically your your brain kind of homing in on the phonemes of uh of your mother tongue and once your brain locks into those phonemes it kind of it's kind of hard to uh to wrap your brain so to speak around other phonemes from other from other languages and uh and it's really hard to break out of that out of that accent. I don't think it has anything to do with genetics. So I'm going to go with two. Okay, Perry.
3: Well, let me take a look at these here. <laughs> I think that I'd have to say, based on my own personal research and knowledge, which is quite vast, you know, <laughs> that uh, that number two is absolute poppy. Dorkedness. Perior to that, Italian. That's <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Quiet now. Moving along, <laughs> idiot. All right. What did must, he
0: say? That must be the very northern reaches of Italy, <laughs> yeah, so, when, when Rome invaded, invaded uh, number England two way is back fiction.
1: when. All right, so you all agree that number two, new research shows that accents have a partial genetic basis, is fiction. So let's go to number one first. NASA scientists report that the chromosphere of the sun is powered and shaped by sound waves, and that is Science,
0: oh, thank goodness, I mean, of course it is
1: as I said, the chromosphere is the uh, the layer it's like it 's like during a, a total solar eclipse that 's the the glowing layer that you see around the moon. the name of it is the chromosphere is called because of it 's color. Uh, it is a significant source of ultraviolet light radiation, and, it, and it, that, um, that varies quite a bit. The chromosphere has a, a shape to it and, a, and an intensity to it. And w- what NASA you know, researchers have found is that it is, it, is, it is partly generated by magnetic fields, but those mat- magnetic fields function significantly through um, sound waves, basically through um, you know, waves of sound emanating from, from inside the sun itself.
0: Very cool. Interestingly,
1: this again you know, one of the mysteries they're hoping to solve with this is with this new models which are accounting for the sound waves is is why this layer is so much cooler than the corona. The outer layer, the corona. So the the surface of the sun is about 6000 degrees Celsius. Uh, this uh layer, the chromosphere is about 10000 degrees Celsius. And then the um, the corona it's like is about millions, a million million it 's a million degrees Celsius, so why is it that when you get farther away from the sun, you actually get you know much much hotter in fact that 's uh, what two orders of magnitude hotter
4: i thought that 's than- been resolved though Steve. I thought they figured that out this pl- this plays into that
1: this plays into that yeah i mean they, 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 they did the the partial answer I think was the magnetic fields, but now this adds to the models you know showing how the sound waves play a role okay. Uh, number three. So, was it, it? Did I make a clean sweep this week, or did you guys all get it right? We got it. We got it. New study finds that moths <laughs> use sound mimicry to avoid being eaten by bats, and this one is also science.
0: Very cool, cool adaption. Hey, I love right it. This
2: week. Um, of course, we did. Jay,
0: I got it right first. Huh?
1: Now, this is uh, this is an example, uh, which there are many of in nature, of of mimicry of of you know one kind or another in order to avoid predation, where Animals which are tasty mimic either visually or in some other way animals which either are poisonous or are not so tasty so that their predators will avoid them. Uh, so that's, that's a known strategy. And it, and it has recently been shown that certain species of moths will mimic the sounds of bad-tasting moths. So tasty moths will try to mimic or, or disguise themselves by, using, by the sounds that they make of the, uh, of the bad-tasting moths so that bats will not eat them. Which is very interesting. Of course, this this strategy always has a certain limit because if, if too many tasty moths start mimicking the bad tasting moths, then the bats will learn that you know that they're okay to eat. You know, so there there's a certain right. sort of mathematical relationship that it sort of settles into. Um, the, the, the the mimickers have to
2: remain in the minority. They should just mimic the sound my ex girlfriend makes. Now the
1: third one. The third. So number two. New research shows that accents have a partial genetic basis that is fiction. Uh, it is based, however, on a real study, although it's very loosely based. Uh, th- there was a study recently showing that the ability to perceive and interpret tonality or inflection in speech does vary with certain. Uh, cer- certain gene variants that are involved in brain development really and that and that those genes those variants which correlate with uh, with an improved or a better ability to un- to appreciate you know different tonal inflections are found in populations, in cultures that have tonal languages, like in Chinese or other Southeast Asian languages and some sub-Saharan African languages, you know, where the inflection actually has carries meaning. Those are called tonal languages. And people from parts of the world that have tonal languages have the variants that are associated with uh, with a better appreciation for tones. And also within a culture, so like within a non-tonal group of people, there are some people who are better at interpreting tones than others, and those people have the variant, have the variant that uh, is associated with that. So there is variation both between groups and also within groups that correlate. Uh, very interesting research. It's also the first that I'm aware of that showed that any of that component of language, it has a genetic basis yeah how previously wear that. it really was thought as as you said Bob that it's really all learned that your the, the the language area of the brain is designed to absorb you know the the language from from in the environment, and then it really just patterns itself after that right. but this shows that there is some, some of the, at least the ability uh this tonal ability is is you know again is uh genetically determined. Which is interesting. And also, you know, just point out that the evidence that of the power that our genes have over the development and the abilities of our brain is really just growing and growing as, as research is being done. So, well done, everybody. You guys got made a clean sweep. Yeah. Thanks. Good job. Ooh. Of course. Evan. Moving on to the puzzle. Evan. So, last yep. week we had the audio rap puzzle by Common Sense. Yes, we did. Uh, Evan, can you tell us what the answer to that puzzle is?
0: Sure, sure. The answer to last week's rap puzzle was, in fact, one Dolores Krieger of Therapeutic Touch fame. Yeah. I'm sure we all have uh, read about her at some point in our in our skeptical lives. Yes. But um, in any case, that was the answer to last week's puzzle. You can go back and listen to the rap again and uh, plug in Dolores Krieger and... and Sure, seems to make a lot of sense for a lot of reasons that people actually posted on the message board. Did so anybody go get ahead it right? and read that? Yes, D Norberg from Tacoma, Washington. Congratulations, D Norberg. Oh,
2: congratulations! D. That was a hard one too. It was a hard one. It was.
0: Yeah, it was. It was interesting. You know, common, uh, common called me up and wanted to know kind of how how things were going with that, and I gave him an update and. Told him that he guessed that you know that uh, D Norberg D Norberg guessed it correctly and he was impressed and uh,
1: and what is this week's puzzle?
0: This week we have a logic puzzle. I'm going to read a uh, sequence of characters and your goal this week, gentle listeners is to fill in the last five characters in the sequence. Here is the sequence. Ready? F, 2, 2, F, 3, E, 7, 2, E, 6, G, 2, 2, G, 4.
3: Hike! (laughs) Sorry.
0: (laughs) And there are five more... That follow that, and it's up to you to put the correct characters in there.
1: Well done,
0: Ms. good Mr. luck, Bernstein,
1: everyone. Our puzzle master,
0: enjoy.
3: I think we should finish this week out with a quote. You do. That's a good idea. What did you have a quote <laughs> in mind? I happen to have one. It is as follows. What is wrong with priests and popes is that instead of being apostles and saints, they are nothing but empirics who say, quote, I know, instead of, quote, I am learning, and pray for credulity and inertia as wise men pray for skepticism and activity. That was one George Bernard Shaw, 1856 to 1950, a British dramatist of some note.
2: (laughs)
1: Bernard Shaw.
3: Nicely done.
0: George Bernard Shaw very good
2: wow that was amazing Perry
3: <laughs> it, it, it goes without saying everything I do is amazing
1: just one quick announcement before we end we do have our second uh, skeptics guide uncut now available for download from our website and this one includes the full version of our interview with Christopher Hitchens a, a very, uh, very entertaining interview
3: this Colourful. is the goods. Very this colorful. Goods. Yeah, very colorful.
1: Yeah, love hitchens. Yeah, I do have to it's warn awesome. you that there is some uh, there is some adult content in the uh, in the interview.
3: Swears like a sailor,
0: <laughs> basically. So, 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 put the kids to bed before you download it,
3: <laughs> or keep, keep it on the headphones. I didn't. You'll note I didn't say a drunken sailor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, guys,
2: thanks again. Always a pleasure. Hey, hey, Steve, you know, you, me, us, you know, doesn't get much better than this.
3: And don't worry, everyone, Hippie Chick will be back next week. <laughs>
1: Hippie Chick is returning next week, assuming her, her new Mac is up and running by then. So, and until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. Please send us your questions, suggestions, and other feedback. You can use the Contact Us page on our website, or you can send us an email to infotheskepticsguide.org. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. Endless Delay